0: The name Monday, which is a, a tricky name, it's actually Latin and it means command. Because on Monday, Thursday, in John's gospel, the central focus was the command he gave in John 13:35, which I think we, we're going to have some slides tonight with some of these on here. But the central command that Jesus gave was this, he said, a new command I give you, as I have loved you. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So that's sort of the... the Jesus sums up all the events of that night in that one command. And that's, it's a command to believers. We are commanded to love one another just as Jesus loved us, as he loved his disciples and laid his life down for them. Well, Jesus... He was a faithful Jewish man. I want you to know Jesus never broke a single biblical command. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus kept them all. Now, there were 10,000 commandments added to the 613 by the time Jesus came along. What they would do is after captivity, the Jewish people were so afraid of breaking a commandment that they would add another commandment. So it might look like this. A biblical command is that you cannot reap and harvest on the Sabbath. Well, they said, what if you're walking across the grass and your cloak happens to touch a grain of wheat on the ground and separates the grain from the shaft? You're reaping and harvesting on the Sabbath and didn't even know it. So they added a rule on the Sabbath day. You can't walk on the grass. Now, that was an additional rule. And then they came to a rule and they said later, the next generation said, well, we don't want to walk across the grass on the Sabbath because that's a rule. So we're going to say on the Sabbath day, you can only walk 100 meters from your home. And they added rule after rule after rule. And each generation would say these are the oral traditions of the elders. So when they say to Jesus, why do you break the oral commands of our fathers, the traditions of the elders? He obliterated those because they weren't from God. But the commands from God, he never disobeyed one of those. And the Jewish people were commanded at Passover to come and celebrate it. So we know that Jesus was faithful to celebrate Passover. In fact, this past Sunday, we celebrated Jesus making perhaps the most bold move in the ancient world. He rode in on a donkey to Jerusalem, a city where people were wanting to see him die. He rides in. If I were Jesus, if I were given Jesus advice, I probably would have been like, hey, let's sneak you in through the back door you need to celebrate Passover, but let's just get you in the back way. No, Jesus comes right in the eastern gate where everybody sees in a prominent way, and then he comes and he celebrates Passover meal on that Thursday night with his disciples. And this is his last meal with these 12 guys. So he um, secures a room, an upper room, would have been in somebody, a, a wealthier person's house to celebrate Passover, and a meal and the ancient world signified fellowship. So like Moses, after he came down from Mount Sinai, he shared a meal with the elders. It's a way of saying, we're good. Things are good between us. We're in fellowship. So them sharing a meal was a significant thing to do. And there was a very specific order. If any of you have ever heard of a Seder meal, the Jews, Jewish people have practiced the Seder meal the same way for thousands of years. Very little of it has changed. I could walk you through a Seder meal. I've done that with groups before. It takes about two and a half hours. So we're not going to do that, but every element of the Seder points us forward to Jesus. Every element of the meal points us to our Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, Passover was the first and most important holy day of the Jewish people. It was the one where they remembered that God freed them from slavery and bondage to Egypt by trusting in the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus frees us from slavery and sin. The blood of the Lamb and Exodus freed them from slavery in Egypt. So they would come and they would eat this meal. Now in Exodus, our next slide here, Exodus chapter 3, it gives them instructions. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel... On the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for each household, a lamb without blemish, a male lamb. So every family would take their own lamb and bring it into their home. And they would have that lamb in their home for five full days. And think about this. Families with children, what would happen if you bring a lamb into your house? What are your kids going to do? They're going to play with that lamb. They're going to give that lamb a name, Fluffy. They're going to like the lamb. They're going to hug the lamb. The lamb's going to be, he's inside the house the whole week. But then on that fifth day, you take the lamb and you kill the lamb. And you do something that seems absolutely crazy. You paint the blood over the door. See, in our our next scripture here, it says, um, on that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn animal. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will be a sign, marking the houses where you're staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a, to, this is a day to remember Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. So they would take the lamb and they would put the blood over the door. There's something in Scripture always significant about the firstborn. Jesus is called the begotten Son of God. We see this unique thing and they are going to save the firstborn through the blood of the Lamb. And we learn something about God's plan of salvation. He has a substitute. You can't save yourself. No one inside the house has done anything to deserve to be saved. They haven't been good enough. They haven't been religious enough. They can't do that. All they've done is something that seems crazy, paint blood on their door. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 118, it says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. So the, the gospel, this message seems foolish to the outside world, but it's what saves. And here they paint the blood, and it says you're to remember. So when we celebrate communion, we remember what Jesus has done. But we don't we forget that communion goes all the way back to the Exodus. That's where it started. Was this idea of communion in the New Testament we see Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and that's why if depending on what tradition you come from, a lot of traditions will have a communion table and they'll have the scripture that says, "This do in remembrance of me." So this is to be something we do to remember, and let me tell you, one of the most important things are traditions. Many of you have traditions in your homes. Many of us remember traditions growing up. They anchor us, they ground us, they help us uh, grow and give us stability. Now, traditions can become negative if we just do them without thinking. But when we realize their purpose, they have power. And that's what God wanted his people to remember this every year. So now, when we think of the Last Supper, here's our image. I'll show you a picture this is, called, this is probably the most famous painting on earth. It's called Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And it's a very Eurocentric, Middle Ages-looking meal. This is not what the meal would have looked like at all. It's a bunch of older-looking men sitting around a table with Jesus in the middle. It's Leonardo's interpretation of that. But when you look at culture and you look at tradition... The meal wouldn't have looked like this at all. This isn't how it would look. In fact, the, the disciples, they were all younger than Jesus. Jesus was in his early 30s. Most believe he was right around 30 when he started his ministry, 33 when he died. The disciples that he called were younger than him. Now, the youngest disciple we know is a guy named John. He's Jesus' little cousin. I think he could have been as young as 13 when Jesus called him. Certainly wouldn't have been any younger than that. That's the age of a Jewish guy becomes a, seen as a, a man, a young man, and you can begin to follow somebody. So he could have been as young as 13, and th- that would make him at this supper around 16. We don't know for sure. Peter was the oldest. He's the leader. Peter, you ever wonder why Peter always speaks so quickly? Everybody's like, Peter's just a, always says things, and he doesn't think before he speaks. Well, in this culture, when you had a group... You had one person speak on behalf of the group. And guess who that was? The oldest. So anytime they ask a question, they're all looking at Peter. What are you going to say, Peter? So Peter always feels this pressure. I've got to answer. I've got to say something. And half the time he says something foolish, and sometimes he says something brilliant. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He always feels this pressure. But Peter's the oldest. He was married. He was probably 18, 19, 20 when he started following Jesus. So, all of these guys are fairly young. They're not old men like we think of uh, in the pictures, and in this picture, in this image, they're not these old guys who would have been hanging out. Now, in Luke, Luke's gospel gives us some more information about this. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. Now, that word reclined is key because there's a certain type of table that the Romans introduced to the Jewish world, it's called a triclinian table. It's in the shape of a U. I've got a Triclinian table set up here. And what you would do is, it was a reclining table. It was, we're free men, we're relaxing. So the Jews adapted it because they loved the idea of, we're free from Egypt, we're no longer slaves, we've been set free. So when we come to eat, we eat in freedom, and they would sit and you would recline like this, left arm on the table, and you would eat with your right So that's how they would eat and they would enjoy a meal. So it makes it very clear from this, the fact that they're reclining, they were at a reclining table. And the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has desired to eat the Passover, and the Passover has all this rich elements. They had four cups. They eat certain things at certain times. It's this big ritual ceremony, and they would do all these things to remember. They would sing the Psalms. They would sing the Hallel. So it's a big celebratory meal. But Jesus is going to point to him that he is the fulfillment of all that they've been waiting for. You see, in the exodus, they didn't have time to eat. They didn't have time to let the bread rise and get yeast in it. So they had to flee quickly. So at the remembrance of this, they relax because they've been set free. And that's a picture for us. As Christians, we should be people who really aren't that stressed out. Oh, we have things that stress us in life. There's difficulties. There's challenges. There's challenges. But we know ultimately we are secure in Christ and we can relax and recline. And what would happen at this meal is you would start a meal by washing hands and they would have a pitcher and the servant. Now, there was a certain seating order. This is where the lowest person sat, right here. This was the servant's seat. And all the seats had a order to them. So when you came to a meal, you were careful about sitting down because you didn't want to sit too quick and end up in a seat that was too important for you, and then go, no, you're actually over here. You're at the back table. So Jesus, the servant, would have went and washed everybody's hands, okay? But here, Jesus does something even lower. He washes the disciples' feet as an act of showing them that, hey, this is what it means to love one another. This is what it means to fulfill that new command, to love one another, is I have loved you. I've done something. Listen, washing feet. In biblical times, there was only a couple of things that a servant could refuse to do for his master. One of them was to wash feet. If a master said, wash my feet, the servant could say, not going to do that. You see, your feet are what got dirty when you walked it was a lowly thing and Jesus does the lowliest thing and he washes their feet and dries them with his own garment. You remember the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet? Well, when they were seated like this, your feet they stick out. So it's easy to wash someone's feet as they're seated here. Now, there's a certain order that you sit in that I want to show you, but I just want to give us a little bit of visual. So I have some folks who've been really kind. Sammy has helped grab some folks. So if, you've, if Sammy has asked you to help, thank you, Sammy, for helping me tonight, you can come on up, and I'll help you get seated. Just, this just gives us a visual, okay? To give us a visual, and I did ask only men because at the Last Supper, all Jesus' disciples were men. So um, he did have followers and disciples that were women, but among the 12... They were men. So y'all can come on up, and Sammy, you can just, y'all can sort of sit wherever. I don't want to seat you because I'm going to show you who was seated where, and I don't want people to be upset about where they end up getting seated. Okay? So let's see. Benjamin, you come on over here. Benjamin, you come on this side of Sammy. You can go right here. It's appropriate for you to be there. So, all right. So, I think we've got about enough. Brooke, you can come on up. Join us. All right. So, when we talk about... Let's go on to the next slide here. This is a, a, an image of where a triclinium table would look. And again, you see Jesus seated over here where Sammy would have been. So, we know in this type of table that this is where the host seated. The host was seated right here and beside him is the guest of honor. All right, so you think you're in a good seat, right? You're the guest of honor. Benjamin, you're seated in the spot of the best friend, okay? And Benjamin would be leaning, so you all sort of can lean. Put your arms up on the table and lean. And Benjamin would be almost leaning back into the chest of Sammy here, who is in the seat of Jesus. And Sammy would be leaning back here into, it's Ebenezer, right? What? Caleb, I'm sorry. Caleb's, he'd be leaning back into Caleb right here. So that's how they would all be seated around the table. So this is what it looked like. Let's go on to the next slide. It said Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he would come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and with a towel washed his disciples' feet. And when he came to Simon Peter, he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, right here, Jesus all of a sudden takes the role of a servant and begins washing the feet that are sticking out. And he's going around the table. So who would you arrive at last? If you were washing everybody's feet, sir, you get your feet washed last, right? Because you're the last guy. Now, just before this event, there had been this debate going on who's the greatest? You remember what Jesus said? First will be last, and the last will be first. So, what do you think Peter did? Peter's the leader of the disciples, he's the one who always speaks. Peter raced for the servant's seat. And he said, I'm going to sit in the servant's seat because I'm going to be first. I'm going to sit in the servant's seat to set the example. So he sits in the last seat, and it's Jesus, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, what are you doing? You're washing my feet. I'm supposed to be doing that. I'm the servant. You see, Peter was supposed to be serving everybody and said, Jesus does it, the host. You're in the lowest seat here, Sarah. You're the one who's supposed to do that, but yet Jesus comes around And he washes his feet. Let's look at the next one. Next slide. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also hands and head. And Jesus said, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. Now, Jesus is talking about physical cleaning, but all of a sudden, he, taught, he switches it to spiritual. Hey, you're clean, Peter. You don't need a bath. Peter's always overboard. Hey, if you wash my feet, wash all of me then. Well, I just need to wash your feet. Yeah, that's all I need to do. And then he says, one of you's not clean, alluding to somebody there is unclean, somebody amongst them. Now let's look at the, the next slide, again from Luke. A disputer rose among them. As to which one of them was guarded as the greatest? And he said to them, The kings and Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? See, they're all reclining. Jesus got to serve. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus, remember, he said, love one another as I've loved you. How do you love one another? By serving. What's a servant do? It's a pretty easy answer. A servant serves. If you want to know you're very good at being a servant, you serve. That's what they do. So let's look at the next one. Back to John. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say one of you will betray me. So, sitting over here, somebody's going to betray me. Who is it that's going to betray me? The disciples start looking at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, who's that? That's John. So, Benjamin, you're seated where John is. So, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, that's how we know where John is, right? You're at Jesus' side, you're reclining right next to him. It's very clear. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask him who he was speaking. Now, Benjamin, who do you see? sitting where you're sitting, who can you naturally look at? You've got that side of the table. Can you see the guys back here, your brothers? Sort of hard to turn your head that way. So, Peter over here, Here's Jesus saying, who's going to betray me? And Peter's got to know, who's going to betray you? But there's only one guy Peter can really see. He can't see all these guys. So he starts motioning to John across the table, going, John, you've got to figure out who it's going to be. So he's motioning to John, trying to get him to tell him who it is. And so it said, so the disciple leaning back against him said, Lord, who is it? Now, I've always wondered... Once Jesus says Judas is going to betray him, don't you think the disciples would take Judas out? I mean, what did Peter do when someone came to arrest Jesus? He pulls out a sword and cuts off his ear. So these guys have a little bit of fire in their belly. Yet, for some reason, when it's announced Judas is going to betray him, they all just sit there and do nothing. So John would have leaned back into Jesus and softly said, Who is it? Let's look at the next slide. Jesus answered, It is he whom I give the morsel and bread when I have dipped. Now listen, at this meal, here's the way it would work. You've got tables set up with different elements here. You've got different cups. They would drink four cups during the meal. They have different things representing. The carousel represents like the mortar that they used to build um, the Uh, all the bricks and make the bricks with. The eggs represent mourning as they cried and wept. The unleavened bread, which I think, Leah, you made this, didn't you? That's pretty impressive. (laughs) So made some unleavened bread for us. It represented the fact that they had to leave Israel so quickly, I mean, Egypt so quickly, they didn't put any yeast in it. So it's a flat bread. And it reminds them of a sinless life. You see, yeast puffs up and makes bread puffy. Sin makes you puffy and think you're more than you are. When we don't have sin in our lives, when we're seeking to live lowly and humble, we look like this. We're not all puffed up and proud. So everything reminded them, but you would eat in groups of three. So the host shares with the best friend and with the guest of honor. And then the next three share, the next three share, the next three share. So they're all sharing in this meal. So Jesus, when he says, who is it? He says, it's him whom I'm going to share this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So that narrows it down to right over here. He said he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, every time I do this, I always feel really a little bad about whoever ends up seated where Judas is. I just can't help but feel that way. So i never like to sign it. Caleb, luck of the draw, that's where you ended up, okay? We know you can handle, handling it doesn't mean anything. But so Jesus, look, isn't this just like Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because these guys, they would have been leaning into one another. Like Benjamin would have almost been reclining into Jesus. John would have been. And then Jesus would be leaning into Judas. Think about it. He knew who's going to betray him, and yet the disciple that he leans into and sits so close to is Judas. So when he says, it's the one who dips with me, he's just saying it to, to John here. This is a little conversation going on right here. Peter's over here trying to, hey, look at me, help me out, and everybody else is just having a meal. Okay? So the disciples don't even get that Jesus has just said Judas is going to betray him. They don't fully grasp that. Now let's look at the next slide. Here, this gives us a little picture of where they would have been seated. Again, I've already walked you through this. John, Jesus, Judas, and Peter. Everybody else, you could be Matthew, you could be Bartholomew, you're somebody. One of the disciples' seats, but we don't know who, because they didn't tell us. But typically, the way it would work at the table triclinian best friend, guest of honor, and it would go from most important all the way down to the least. So that Peter was seated, literally, in the lowest seat, the servant seat. Let's go into the next slide. So, again, this is just a picture I found of Peter trying to get the attention over there of John and say, John, you got to tell me what's going on. And you can see them all talking and conversing. So, uh, you can get the commotion that would be going on. Let's go to the next slide. It says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, what you're going to do to do quickly Now, no one at the table knew why he said that to him. Again, Scripture is very clear. These guys at the table, they're clueless about what's about to happen. They don't get that Judas is about to go betray him. They just think he's telling Judas to go buy something for Passover. Uh, Judas was the one who handled the money for the group. So what you're going to do, do it quickly. Let's look at the next line. Now, back to Exodus. Exodus. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintels of the house with which they eat, and they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. There's bitter herbs. The bitter herbs reminded them of the bitterness of slavery. It reminds us, us of, our, of the bitterness of slavery. Again, the unleavened bread reminded them of the sinlessness of Christ. And they would take the blood and paint it over the doorposts, and they would have... I think we've only got one, but I think is this actually a lamb, Margaret? Some goat? We got goat. So, no, we got some. They would take the lamb that they had prepared as a for the Passover, this spotless lamb. And again, think about it, family. You've had this lamb in your house all week long. Your kids are mourning. They're crying. They're saying, "Dad, how can you kill Fluffy? Why are you doing that?" And you're saying. God commanded us to. It's meant to hurt. Your sin is meant to hurt. The sting of freedom that costs somebody else something is meant to hurt. So here, they would eat this. They would eat the flesh to remember the sacrifice. And here, let's look at the next slide. And again, Jesus does all this in the context of a new command I give them. Love one another as I've loved you. So he's given them a display of this whole thing. What they would do is they would take the cup. There's four cups. I'll walk through that at another, another Thursday night. I do it different each year. But there's the four different cups. One of them is the cup of redemption. And it's that cup that Jesus pauses. And he says, this is my blood. And he takes this bread and he says, this is Bread is my body, this sit bread representing sinlessness. And, and Leah, you even striped it for me. Gosh, I wasn't expecting that. If you buy matzah bread, it's always striped, just like Jesus was striped. Matzah bread is flat, no yeast, representing Jesus' sinless life. It's a picture of Christ, and Jesus takes it and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body given for you and then he takes the cup and he says this now this cup from the old testament it's now the cup of the new covenant that i paid the price for and they would share it around the table and they instituted the first lord's supper this was the last passover meal ever needed no passover meal will ever be needed again and it's the first lord's supper and that's why we as Christians, we celebrate the Lord's Supper just as they were to remember this for all time. Now we remember the fulfillment of it for all time. We remember the fulfillment of it in communion. The Lord's Supper is what we call it. Let's look at the next slide. Back to Luke. He took the bread and gave it to them. Gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and likewise, he said, the cup poured out for you is the new covenant my blood. Jesus' blood spilled for the new covenant. A a, a new covenant that no longer do we have to wonder if we're saved, hoping in the promise of God. It's the fulfillment in Christ. Let's look at the next side. This is from Isaiah, pointing to Christ. And Look at what it says. He was pierced. He was striped, or what healed us. The bread is literally striped. Again, it's a picture of Christ. It's an amazing picture of our Messiah Jesus and the price he paid for us. So, again, Jesus' sinless body being broken. And he tells us the key phrase in this is do this in remembrance of me. Now, typically at this service, at this point, I would have us share communion. And I love doing that, it's a beautiful thing. But just with a little bit more elevated COVID restrictions, we decided not to do that tonight. So maybe, maybe next year. But it's a beautiful thing to remember. Don't ever forget the traditions that you have in your household and with your family and the traditions of your life. They stabilize you. And Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me, okay? You guys can all go be seated. Would y'all give them a hand? I really... Um, I, I, it's, it's always hard to find for some reason it's always hard for us to get the folks to come and do this so Sammy great job all the guys who are willing to come up and sit up here thank you yeah I hope this has just been a special night to remember a bit I like to keep it simple I say it's very family friendly so after I close this you're welcome to come up and look at the table um, I'll tell you, um, Marut went and got all these things and had them put on there. They had uh, candles burning. This, this is really, again, it's our rendition of what it would have looked like. It's not exact, but it gives you a flavor of what the table would look like. So feel free, after I pray, to come up here. Kids, you can look around. If your kids are coming up here, parents, um, I've had a few bad years where the kids went up and it got a little out of hand. Probably none of these kids will do that, but you can just come up and look maybe. Monitor your kids as they come up. Um, Last time I did this, I had one of the candles, wax, burn over, and it set the table on fire. That was really exciting. So, praise the Lord, we didn't have that tonight. Um, We we were without incident. But I do want to thank you all for coming tonight. I hope this has been helped you see a little bit more into the culture, into the events of that night. Again, I would encourage you, read John chapter 13, through chapter 18, or maybe it's 18, yeah. Read that if you have a moment, because that's the events that happen tonight. I always like to do this because there's so much we can do, so next year we may cover some more, um, and and we'll talk about some other things happening. But let me pray for us, and then you're welcome to come back. Oh, we got a song, don't we? One more song. I don't want to forget to sing. We're going to, and hey, listen, after they celebrated the meal... That's what they did was sing. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing, and after we sing, we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for your word. It's so good, and I thank you that you open our eyes and to the good news of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for these young men who came up here and sat at this table. I pray that they would see themselves as disciples, as your followers, and that they would desire to follow you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord, I pray for uh, the parents that are here. I pray that you give them a special measure of grace. Lord, we we parent so imperfectly. Parenting is hard. And our greatest desire is that our children know you. So may we as a church, as a community, rally around one another, encourage one another's kids, encourage one another's faith, and may by your grace you awaken faith in each child's life here. May their story be one that I have always walked with the Lord. And Lord, if that's not their story, may it be that you rescued them when they roamed and brought them back. Lord, thank you for dying. Thank you for celebrating this last supper. Thank you for being gracious even to Judas. Even to the end, you sat there with him, beside him, given an opportunity to turn. We thank you for your grace. We would be hopelessly lost if you hadn't saved us. So thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.